Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much for joining this webinar. Um, we're going to, this afternoon, talk about how to put HR back in control of GDPR, or making sure that HR have got all the processes and procedures in place and know exactly what they need to do in relation to GDPR. Now, as we go through uh, the webinar today, there'll be plenty of opportunity for you to answer questions or have your questions answered at the end. You'll notice that in the GoToWebinar application, there's actually a space to answer questions. And I'd encourage you to ask those as you go along, as you think about them. Please don't be shy about asking those questions. Um, ask as many questions as you like, and we'll try to get to as all of them actually on the webinar. But if we don't actually get to answer all of them um, during the course of this webinar, we will of course um, make those answers available after the event if we don't uh, if we run out of time. So today I'm very pleased to be uh, providing and uh, hosting this webinar uh, along with Exceed. Um, now Exceed, for those of you who are not aware, are actually a de developer and provider of HR systems and services. So very, very pleased to be um, undertaking and presenting this webinar along with them. And uh, Chris Mitford-Slade should be uh, joining us in a little while, and he'll be um, talking about some of the ways that Exceed actually helps people, helps you um, with meeting your GDPR compliance and requirements. A couple of uh, points, housekeeping points. Um, we're going to make sure that uh, everyone is aware today about uh, some GDPR terminology and a little bit about the background of GDPR, just to make sure there's a, a level setting and uh, make sure there's some good information there uh, for everyone to understand. Um, we're also going to be covering off uh, five steps to help uh, ensuring that HR, um, HR departments have control of GDPR. And we're also going to talk about where to get some further information. We've got plenty of time, as I've already mentioned, for questions uh, at the end. And the webinar will also be recorded. So we'll be making this webinar available after the event, both as a video and also as a podcast. So if you'd like to subscribe to the uh, Fifth Step podcast, there'll be details at the end of this webinar about how to do that. But if you go to www.fifthstep.com and go to the Fifth Sense section of our website, you'll be able to find that and uh, and subscribe and find out all the other podcasts and webinars that we've, uh, we've run previously. Well, let's make a start and start talking a little bit about the background of GDPR. Now, many people perhaps do realize, or some perhaps won't, that actually GDPR is, uh, is a new regulation, but based on the data protection uh, directive, which is another piece of European reg regulation for data privacy and data privacy. Now, that dates back to 1998, but actually both of those pieces of regulation, GDPR and the, the DPD, um, have their roots back in the first Data Protection Act, which dates back to 1984, would you believe? So it's quite a long time ago that, uh, that the UK first implemented um, one of the first data protection laws. Now, bringing you up to date, though, the GDPR um, enforcement begins on May 25th. Uh, that's actually 28 days uh, today at point of recording for those of you listening after the event. So only 28 days now until enforcement begins. Now, the jurisdiction of uh, GDPR, and this has always been a little bit of a, um, uh, a new aspect, or is a new aspect to the GDPR, is that it's uh, an extraterritorial 
uh, regulation. So that means anyone processing European private and personal data has to make sure that they are compliant, irrespective of their location. So FISTEP often deals with organizations in many different parts of the world. Um, and uh, many of those, their HR departments, for example, are perhaps centralized. Um, perhaps they're centralized in Europe, but perhaps not. Perhaps they're centralized in uh, the USA, for example. And that means that they have to comply with the GDPR rules in the same way as any other organization based in the UK or Europe. The maximum fines. Now, these are the things that organizations tend to uh, focus on and has certainly focused the attention of some, uh, some of the larger organizations. And that is the, the fines. And they can be the greater of 4% of the annual global revenue or 17 million dollars, uh, sorry, 17 million pounds, 20 million euros. And that's approximately um, 24 or just over 24 million dollars uh, at the moment. So GDPR has long arms. It can reach you know, around the globe. And it also has sharp teeth in the forms of the penalties and the fines that can be levied. GDPR, though, by no stretch of the imagination, is uh, is it the only data protection and data privacy requirement uh, around the world? It's certainly not. And um, here's uh, a map showing some uh, some details of some of the regulation that's uh, that's in place. And now it's important to mention that not all um, regulation is equal. And uh, you know, just because I'm showing a flag there, it doesn't mean that. Uh, the data protection regulation in uh, China, for example, is uh, you know is exactly the same as uh, GDPR. It's most certainly not, but there are some similarities. So that's something to to be aware of. If you're a multinational organisation, um, putting the uh, putting all these uh, pieces of regulation together so that you have one overarching control. Um, uh, or overarching controls for data protection, data privacy, um, can be something that's quite daunting. But that's something that FISTEP's actually developed quite a, a talent for. So if you are facing those kind of challenges or interested to know more about that, then do um, please reach out to us. I'm more than happy to talk to you about that. Okay, let's start talking about some of the, the uh, terminology. Um, I'll whiz through some of these because some of you will be aware of it and those who uh, are not aware. Hopefully, I've simplified it in such a way as to make it relatively simple for um, for newcomers to pick up. But some of this terminology, uh, when uh, when you first come across it, will um, you know, is confusing for those who haven't been involved in European data protection before. So we're talking about personal data, and personal data is anything that. Um, identifies a uh, an individual. Now that can be directly, so it can be a passport number, for example, or a credit card number, or a bank account number. Any of those things would be pieces of information that would identify an individual. But it can also be unstructured data. Um, you know, so data that doesn't at first uh, uh, the first flush sound like it's personal data. So an example that I often use is. Uh, the man at, who lives at 12 the High Street who owns a red Porsche. Now, some might say, "Oh, well, that's not uh, personal information because um, you know because you're not giving the person's name away. Sure, you're giving an address away, but you're only saying it's the man, so it's not an individual." 
But think about it from the perspective of if there's only one man who lives um, at 12 the High Street, or if there's only one Porsche owner, or indeed one red Porsche owner, or in fact, only one person living at 12 the High Street. Those kind of things mean would make um, that un rather unstructured data uh, into personal data. So you have to be quite careful about um, how you understand and segment and um, protect your personal data or, or, and, and indeed identify it. So on the right-hand side, um, there's some examples there of um, the common types of personal uh, data. So name, employee ID, employee appraisals. Um, employee, employee appraisals are important because they uh, express an opinion uh, about an individual. Um, and some of the others there, bank account numbers, IP addresses. Uh, so when you log on to the internet, uh, you're giving an IP address. That is now classified as uh, personal uh, personal data, personal information. Sensitive personal data is uh, another category of uh, personal data, and it tends to be, or I tend to think about it as being the kind of data that people have historically been persecuted for. So it's things like um, ethnic origin, uh, political opinions, religious beliefs, um, uh, sexuality, those kinds of things. Uh, they're all uh, aspects of uh, personal data or sensitive personal data um, that um, uh, that are important for um, important to, to differentiate between and make sure that uh, that you're that you're guarding and that you're treating uh, slightly differently. So you have to make sure you that you absolutely need sensitive personal data. It's not something that you can just say, oh well, um, you know, we we just want to collect it. Okay, it has to be treated differently and kept um, uh, and kept um, uh, particularly safe. And in new to the GDPR is the addition of biometric and genetic information, uh, which is added as part of uh, the GDPR. So if you have uh, some uh, very uh, fancy uh, biometric um, security system that uh, recognizes people's um, uh, fingerprints or um, does facial recognition or recognizes irises or something uh, far-fetched like that um, then it may be that you need to look at that uh, from the perspective of it capturing and storing biometric information uh, the purpose or purposes for which data is collected and processed is a really important aspect uh, behind the gdpr it really goes to the transparency that is required by uh, data processors and data controllers under the GDPR. So it's likely that, you, that you'll have uh, more than one uh, purpose as part of your uh, compliance with the GDPR. Uh, you'll have um, at least one for the provision of your um, service, um, you know, whatever that may be that you're transacting, assuming you're a business. If you're a charity, for example, you'll have um, you'll have a uh, a statement of uh, your privacy statement will be uh, tailored towards that. Um, you'll also have, or quite possibly have a purpose that will be um, tailored towards recruitment. So you're treating data differently when you're recruiting someone as opposed to when they've actually been hired and they're working for you or indeed um, during the course of them being a customer of yours. And you'll also have a purpose around the provision of employment. You may have others as well. These are just some of the common ones um, that exist. Uh, and that most organizations will have um, purposes defined around uh, around those three. But as I say, they may have more. 
data processing really sits at the heart of what the GDPR is about. It's about keeping personal data um, only being processed in the way and for the things that, uh, the, that it was intended, that the data controller has said was part of the purpose. Now, if you look through this list of what you can or what is defined as being data processing, um, I've looked at this list must be a thousand times now, and I genuinely can't think of anything that you can actually do to personal data or with personal data that wouldn't be considered to be data processing. So rather than uh, dwell on the fact of, oh, we're only storing the data or, and therefore, you know, we're not really processing it, we're just storing it. Um, rather than trying to look for, um, you know, loopholes like that, in actual fact, you're better off just to say, um, under the GDPR, if we're collecting personal data, then we have to make sure that we're processing it correctly um, because the likelihood is we're going to be um, processing it in accordance with what the GDPR actually knows and believes. Okay, um, let's move on to the next one. We are talking now about consent. Okay, so consent is um, one of the legal bases for um, for uh, providing uh, access or, or for a, a data subject to provide access to their data. Now, there are six in total, okay, and I'll talk about some of the others. Um, but for consent, it must be freely given specific, specific and informed indication by the data subject uh, signifying their agreement to their personal data being processed. Okay, and that's, um, consent must be positive, so it must be opt-in. So whereas before you've got away with um, having a pre-ticked tick box to say, yes, please send me an email um, once a month about the other services um, that I provide, um, in this instance, we can't do that. Uh, we have to make sure that the data subject is ticking that tick box themselves to say that they actually want to continue uh, receiving marketing or other information for you. And while we're talking about marketing, whilst this is an HR um, orientated uh, webinar, it's important to understand that marketing is actually the only function within um, your business function that's actually mentioned within the GDPR, within the basis of our understanding of direct marketing. So um, your marketing colleagues, if they're not taking GDPR seriously and not in control of their GDPR uh, requirements, might be an idea to just mention that to them, that um, marketing is actually directly mentioned within the GDPR. Okay, so um, this is uh, one of the slides that, um, uh, that Chris was originally going to uh, cover off, but I'll cover this one uh, off to the best of, uh, the best of my ability. Um, this is how, um, this is one of the screens here that is part of uh, the Exceed application. So um, where you're relying on uh, consent from your employees, and that may be the basis in which you're, um, you're, um, you're getting their permission to, uh, to process their data, um, your um, Exceed helps you out a great deal by actually capturing and documenting that consent. Um, and as you can see here, it's confirming who the individual is and also confirming that they're going to be responsible for maintaining their personal data, which is another requirement of the GDPR, that the personal data needs to be uh, maintained and of high quality. Now, I mentioned that consent is only one of the legal bases for processing personal data. There's actually six, including consent. Um, so 
in looking at the types of data that you're processing, whether that be HR data or transactional data, look at the different uh, types. Consent is a very, very powerful one, okay, but it does have uh, one of the advantages or otherwise of putting the data subject wholly in control of that data in that they can withdraw their consent at any, uh, uh, at any point. Um, now, you may say, oh, okay, well, that's what we want. Um, that's, uh, that's okay. And many uh, different organizations will make di many different decisions based on their interpretation of uh, their requirements or indeed their attitude to, um, to risk and to um, uh, and to the way that they're processing the data. So all of those things are important for you to consider. Okay, and here we have the definition of a data controller. So the data controller is the person, company, or organization who determines the purpose for the um, of the um, of the data being collected, of the personal data being collected. Now. Um, a data controller is absolutely critical here. And in, for most HR departments, you, your organization will be the data controller. If you are a third party providing um, HR services to another uh, organization, then you would be considered to be the data processor. And we'll talk about those in a moment. But in most cases, you're going to be the data controller. The data processor is, um, and indeed uh, data subprocessors, are the people or companies who undertake processing on behalf of the data controller, but who are not the employees of the data controller. So it's very much actively a third party to the organization who's processing the data on their behalf. Now, in an HR setting, um, the example that I tend to use here of a common uh, data uh, provider is if you have a third party who provides um, who provides uh, payroll services, for example. Um, in that scenario, that organization may be um, a, or if they're a third party, they will be a data processor on your behalf. Now, obviously, as part of GDPR, you want to be limiting the number of times that you're extracting data and sharing data with organizations and third parties, because the more often that you do that, um, the more often, uh, the, uh, the more likely you are to be able to uh, lose the data or indeed perhaps email it to the wrong, uh, the wrong people if you're actually emailing data around. So um, examine closely how you're um, exporting data, when you're exporting data, and if there are safer or better ways to be doing that. And work with your data protection officer um, where that's appropriate to actually um, work out the best and safest ways to do this and to send data. Now, under the GDPR, um, data subjects have eight uh, rights, and these are the fundamental rights and aspects around GDPR. You know, aside from data privacy and data protection, really at the heart of the GDPR is the rights of the data subject. So, making sure the data subject has the rights to take control, maintain control of their data throughout its life, and uh, no matter who it's given to, uh, they have. Uh, the right to exert these rights um, back on the organization. So I'm going to run through those quickly just uh, to make sure that everyone has a good base level and understanding of those. So at the top, we have the right to be informed. Absolutely critical. And that's why you have your purposes um, your and your uh, privacy notices well-defined to lay out 
what the purpose for collecting the personal data is. And as I said earlier on, you'll have a number of purposes um, defined, some for um, you know, recruiting people, some for um, employing those people, some um, another one for transacting business with them, for example. And those privacy notices need to be displayed before you collect any personal data as well. So you're making sure that the, um, in accordance with the right to be informed, making sure that the data subject is well informed, well ahead of them actually providing the data. Now, there are some exceptions to that. Um, one exception that um, I like to draw HR uh, people's attention to specifically is if they're receiving a CV, for example, perhaps someone emails um, you directly um, sending their CV. Very often, a CV will have, of course, contact information and other personal information on there um, that um, you've had no opportunity to present that data subject with your privacy notice. Well, best practice around that would be to, um, in the acknowledgement of receipt of that, um, that uh, um, CV, for example, to actually um, send a copy of your privacy notice back um, that it, um, so that the data subject can then say, oh, well, hold on a moment, they're going to uh, hold on to my CV for, you know, 12 months. I didn't expect them to hold it that long. Um, I, I, you know, I withdraw my consent for them to use uh, my data and, you know, they send an email back saying, oh, no, please delete this. I didn't realise. So it gives uh, um, gives the, uh, the options in that respect. Okay, so the right of access. Um, Ah, I understand that um, Chris has actually joined the web webinar, but he's only in listen-only mode at the moment. So, um, okay, well, we'll see what we can do about that as we uh, as we go through. Um, given I'm already um, in the webinar at the moment, it's a bit difficult for me to alter that. So, um, let's look at the right of access. Now, as a data subject, you have the right um, to request a copy of the personal data that. Um, that an organization stores on you or stores about you. So, and, and that includes, um, you know, everyone, everyone, uh, everyone who is uh, a European resident uh, has uh, has these rights. So um, as a, an employee, for example, you can ask uh, what data um, you have stored, uh, an organization is storing on you, but equally as a customer of, a, of an organization, you have that right uh, to inquire as to what information they hold on you. Now, there are some exceptions around that. I know that uh, law firms, for example, um, will actively exclude any information that pertains to a, a legal case, for example. Um, so uh, if someone's going through a divorce, for example, uh, they can't write to their spouse's lawyer and uh, uh, do a, perform a subject access request and find out all the information that their spouse has uh, given about them to, uh, to the lawyer. Um, that, uh, for example, wouldn't be permitted. The third right is the right to rectification. Um, that's uh, the right to you know, uh, correct the data, any information that's, uh, that's held that's incorrectly by an organization, a data subject has the right to have that corrected. And you have to have the processes, uh, the business processes in place, both to recognize uh, these rights and to enforce them too. And there's a, a tight time scales around these um, these these requests as well. They all have to be um, fulfilled within a month um, of their request. And the Information Commissioner's Office, who is the Data Protection Authority here in the UK, has said that they um, they won't be forgiving of organisations who 
um, who can't process within a month just because they've had more requests than were expected, for example. Okay, you have to have and have to have the planning in place and to be responsive enough to be able to deal with subject access requests and other uh, requests from data subjects. So the fourth uh, right of the data subject is the right to erasure, or if you're over a certain age, um, other 1980s bans are available. Now the right to erasure, sometimes uh, called the right to be forgotten, is the right to have your data uh, deleted by an organization. Now in an HR sense, this probably isn't going to happen whilst an employee is, um, is employed by a company for obvious reasons, but organizations do have the right to refuse the right to erasure. Um, now, in those specific cases, it will usually be because the data has to be held or certain data has to be held for other purposes, such as the fulfillment of employment law or company law or anti-money laundering requirements, uh, those kind of things. So um, a company does have the right to say no, and these are the reasons why we can't delete all of your data or this is the data that we've deleted, but we can't remove this others, other data because of this. Okay, so you do have those rights, but generally speaking, you have to be able to fulfill the right to erasure. The next right is the right to restrict processing. So a data subject having, um, having uh, asked for their data um, is able to um, then come back and say, well, not only have you got the data incorrect and I'm asking you for, to correct it, but until that data is corrected, um, I want you to restrict processing of that data. Now, in the scenario that we've uh, spoken, about, spoken about here, in an HR scenario, um, the ideal is that you're actually granting access to your employees so they can update and maintain their own data. Very, very powerful when your systems do that, and I know that's a feature within uh, Exceed as well, but very, very powerful when you're able to push that, uh, uh, that capability back to your, uh, your employees or your data subjects so that, that, that they are actually responsible for the maintenance of their data, of their, you know, their name, their address, and then those other details. The next right is the right to data portability. Now, in an HR sense, I don't think there's really um, going to be much call for the right to data portability. There may be. I can see that in future, organisations may insist on um, you know, individuals bringing a copy of their data with them when, you know, along with their P45 uh, from their previous employer, for example. I can see that, um, that developing, but at this point in time, there's no real right to data portability. Now, where I can see and sectors that I believe will be most great affected. Um, in the financial services sector, for example, we're all familiar with the comparison websites for, you know, for um, any financial services virtually, you know, for credit cards and for uh, motor insurance, those kind of things. I can see those kinds of websites really um, having a field day with the right to data portability because what it gives is the data subject the right to request an electronic copy of all of their personal data that's held by an organization. So it's very, very similar to the right of access, but this allows um, the data subject to have an electronic copy of their, of their personal data in a, an industry standard format. So that's perhaps XML or a CSV file, or if there's a particular uh, format that's used by organizations, then it will be um, that particular format. 
The right to object is very similar to the right to restrict processing and it really revolves around the fact that uh, the data subject is not happy with the way that you're processing uh, their data, either because they believe the data is incorrect or they believe you're processing it for a purpose other than what you stated or what they agreed to. So in this case, the, um, the data subject has the right to object to data processing. Uh, and that's likely to be used in conjunction with other, um, you know, other rights being asserted, such as the right to rectifi rectification um, and the right to restrict processing, for example. And the final right is the right to manual processing. Now, again, I can't think of a very good um, example of where this would be used in HR. Uh, an example I've used previously is perhaps if you used a, an automated process, an algorithm, uh, for example, to decide on um, to automatically decide on what basis pe uh, people would be given a pay rise or a bonus or something like that. It may be that the amount of their bonus would be calculated, um, you know, using a formula which took their you know, current salary and their um, the number of days off sick they've had this year or something like that. Um, stretching the point a bit, but I'm sure you can understand the process um, that I'm talking about. In that case, if um, someone was unhappy with um, the, the, the calculation, they may object to manual um, to automated processing and may ask for their case to be looked at um, manually. Now, where I think this is again going to be more prevalent is with organisations who are financial services, for example, where uh, individuals are applying for a loan or for a mortgage or something like that. And these days, as we probably all appreciate, a lot of that is automated and based on um, you know, credit records and things like that, but it's largely automated. I can very much see um, organizations having to um, perform manual reviews of these kinds of uh, cases where someone uh, believes that you know, another John Smith down the road has, who has really bad credit is affecting their ability to get a mortgage, for example. And just a reminder, please do ask any questions as, um, you know, as we go along. Um, we will be asking uh, or uh, answering those as we, uh, as we go through. Um, I can see we've already had a number already um, in there. So thank you very much for that. Do please keep them coming. An important aspect around um, GDPR is really making sure that you're leveraging um, the advantages that your computer systems and your know, business processes, but really your computer systems, um, to make sure that they're making compliance easier. Uh, there are systems out there, and I'm sure we've all um, seen them, but there are systems out there that um, have obviously been invented long before uh, GDPR that have no understanding of GDPR or indeed in some instances the data protection directive um, you know particularly if they're coming from another part of the world that doesn't uh, understand European regulations so make sure that um, that your systems are making it as easy as possible wherever possible that they are recognizing and treating uh, different data types and uh, different purposes differently and they're restricting access to personal data you know in, a, in an appropriate way you know on a role uh, a role basis okay and wherever possible they're automatically enforcing policies such as data retention because under the data um, the, the the GDPR data can only be retained um, and stored for a, and processed for a certain period of time so make sure that your privacy policies um, state what your data retention period is. 
uh, and that the privacy notices for hiring someone, for example, may say that you're only going to retain the data for you know, six months or a year, depending on what, uh, what you feel is appropriate for your organization. So make sure you've got those things. And here we've got uh, another slide that um, uh, demonstrates how Exceed um, makes compliance easier and how it's helping you comply with the GDPR. And as you can see here, it's a roles-based um, uh, security system in allowing people to have the right kind of um, access at the right times and uh, being able to be limited. So you can see here the confidential information. I'm just going to pick on that one because it's a very good example. But confidential information is only accessible by um, you know, by those two groups of uh, people, the HR sysadmin um, sys and HR admin. So very um, tight lockdown there on uh, com uh, confidential information. Whereas other types of information um, have uh, different rules. And that's exactly the way that it should be, exactly the kind of um, examples I was giving on the previous slide. Now we spoke about um, third parties and uh, data processors on one of the previous slides. And what we've uh, got here is the whole reason why you need to be holding your vendors to account and understanding where the third parties are and who they are and what they're doing with your data uh, and with your with your employees' data as uh, as HR people. So vendors and suppliers, uh, they're often for HR departments at least processing very personal information and uh, uh, and sometimes uh, sensitive personal information too. So you need to make sure that you've got contracts in place with your uh, vendor uh, vendors and that your vendor management system, so the process you go through to ensure your vendors are uh, delivering value and that they're uh, delivering within the SLAs, the service level agreements that um, that. Uh, that you're expecting. You need to make sure your vendor management process is holding your vendors to account and ensuring and checking their continued compliance with the GDPR. And this goes, um, should, hopefully um, you'll be making this linkage anyway from what we said earlier on, but this includes if they are based outside uh, the EU, um, in fact, particularly if they're based outside the EU. So if, for example, you have an outsourced payroll uh, process, um, and it's based in North America, for example, you need to have very strict contractual agreements in place to ensure that that North American company is um, complying with the GDPR and not putting your staff's data at risk. There are very few uh, upsides to putting your, your staff's data at risk. It's uh, not a good reputational story to be, uh, to be telling that uh, you know, one of the benefits is will you know, of joining the companies will lose your data. It's not uh, not so good. And here we go. This is how Ex uh, Exceed demonstrate uh, their compliance. So uh, you would have uh, recently uh, received or should have re recently received um, uh, some uh, information from Exceed um, detailing exact exactly how they're using uh, your data and uh, showing how they're complying with the GDPR. Exactly the sort of thing that you need to be receiving from your other vendors, but also making sure that you've got the vendor management system to ensure, to force them to provide such information and that they're continuing to, to do a good job for you. Updates to your policies, processes, and procedures. Um, now, 
you've probably all been going through the process, depending on where you are um, right at this point in time with GDPR. You've been going through the process of updating your policies and updating your processes and probably updating your procedures as well to embed GDPR and the requirements of GDPR into your normal business practices. That really is the best practice uh, around implementing these kinds of regulatory requirements. So make sure that if you haven't done that, that you've uh, at least understand which policies, processes and procedures you're going to need to update. And um, you know, don't delay on that because um, whilst the Information Commissioner's Office and other data protection authorities around, uh, around the world have said or around Europe, Europe rather, have said uh, it's going to be a soft landing for GDPR. Um, what they're really saying there is we want to see evidence that you are taking GDPR seriously. And if you are taking GDPR seriously, then we're going to give you perhaps a little bit of slack during, you know, the um, you know, up until the latter half of 2018. But, you know, that's not going to extend forever. Um, so they're just trying to make it clear that they're not going to jump on everyone on the 26th of May, uh, you know, and be doing dawn raids on the 26th of May um, just to, um, you know, try and catch people out. That's not the way that they're going to be working. Although under GDPR, the ICO does have the right to come and ask an organisation to demonstrate their GDPR compliance. That's another big change from the Data Protection Directive, actually. On the right-hand side of this slide, you can see there's uh, four uh, policies that I've listed out there. Um, they're sort of the minimum minimum ones I would expect you to have in place um, that directly relate to the GDPR. So they're not necessarily HR, uh, fully HR orientated. So there'll be others that will be impacted, but these four are the absolute minimum that you should have in place, and they should should be reviewing to ensure um, that uh, uh, that they are GDPR compliant. Now, as HR people, many of you won't have had the, I was going to say pleasure, but it's not really the right word, but you won't have had the pleasure of um, having to deal with a data breach. Um, I've had that uh, dubious uh, pleasure on numerous occasions, not for Fifth Step, I hasten to add, but on behalf of uh, Fifth Step clients. Um, and it's really not a pleasant uh, experience. You know, everyone's very busy, uh, very often trying to work out whether, um, you know, the data breach is still ongoing, whether it's a hack underway or what the nature of the data breach is and things like that. So having a data breach plan in place is an absolute must, doubly so uh, when GDPR comes into enforcement because you have 72 hours. Okay, just let that land, 72 hours. Now that's not 72 business hours. So, you know, the clock doesn't stop at six o'clock uh, and then restart again at, you know, eight or nine o'clock the following morning. It's 72 hours from the point of the breach, the, the personal data breach being discovered. Okay. And during that period, you have to perform triage. So understand what the nature of the, the breach is, stop the breach if it's st still ongoing, you know, make sure that it's uh, not, um, you know, the data is, it still isn't leaking out of the building. Um, establish the scope and size of the data breach, you know, so how many records were um, stolen, what type of records were they, was it all personal data, was there any sensitive personal data in there? You also have to um, assess the impact on the, on the data subjects. Um, you have to notify the Data Protection Authority, so the Information Commissioner's Office in this case. 
and you also, depending on the, the nature of the data breach, are likely to have to notify the data subject subjects too. So let's just compare that to some of the more recent data breaches that we're probably all aware of. Um, you know, this uh, use the Equifax one as an example. I, I, I like to use that one as an example because it's the complete opposite of what you should do, really. Um, the Equifax breach didn't concentrate on HR data um, specifically, so before you're scratching your head trying to recall that one. Um, it did, however, uh, result in the breach of 160 million um, adults' personal data being released. And Equifax um, didn't make this information available to those data subjects for six months. Okay, so not 72, well, not even 72 days, um, you know, it was six months. So not 72 hours, not even 72 days, but six months before uh, information started to creep out about the fact that there had been this breach. So don't follow the Equifax example. You need to have a data breach plan in, uh, in place. If it's not something you've done before, if it's not something you've got in place now, obviously reach out to Fifth Step. We've, you know, we're here to help with this. We've done a lot of this kind of work. We understand what needs to go in there. We can help you with that kind of thing. Being able to demonstrate that you've got um, a GDPR project in place, as I said earlier on, is absolutely key to being able to defend yourself against um, the Data Protection Authority. Um, so when, oh, Chris, you've just joined. Excellent news. Yeah, I'm joined as a panelist now. That's great. Thanks, Darren. I'll step in in one second. Great. Well done. Great. Um, so, um, yes, making sure that you've got a project running. It's absolutely critical that you do that because um, the Information Commissioner's Office, as I said earlier on, will go easier on you if you're actually um, able to demonstrate that you're taking the GDPR seriously. Okay, If you're not doing that, you're not uh, you're not able to demonstrate that. They'll assume that you have no respect for the for the GDPR, and your, the fines will be that, that heavier for you, even in the soft landing phase. So make sure you're able to demonstrate it. But also, just to be clear, GDPR isn't a one-off project. It's not a one and done. Okay, you're going to need to keep compliance, and that means that every change to an HR system that's done, you need to be looking at what the implications are for you or a change to a business process or an HR process, you're going to need to think about what the consequences are there to the uh, GDPR compliance. So make sure that you've got that and you're considering that and it's being it's becoming part of your normal project management process. So before we move on um, to questions, um, I'm going to um, um, give Chris an opportunity. Uh, and Chris, if you need me to step back to any of the slides that um, um, that, uh, that I spoke to, um, the exceed slides earlier on, but I thought I'd give you the opportunity to do a far better job to describe some of the aspects of how exceed um, helps its clients um, uh, comply with things like that. Thank you very much. Could you go back to the slide which shows the data subject's rights? Absolutely. So this is a really valuable slide because this is what all the data owners uh, need to decide what rights they're going to give to the data subjects. And we in Exceed as a data processor 
can help um, our clients um, enable uh, those rights. There are a few in here that are quite interesting ones. So um, the right to be informed. So uh, that is about making sure you get consent uh, from the data subjects, from your employees, from applicants to actually store and use their data for the appropriate purposes. Um, you can do that in a number of ways, such as contracts of employment, but in terms of system access, um, uh, our system could enable you to get their consent when they first log into the system. What you might want to consider is actually obtaining that consent um, every year. And uh, that's something that's very easy to do with an Exceed um, by actually switching off the consent tick box and getting people and the next time they log in to actually give their consent on an annual basis. That's something you may want to consider. In terms of the right to rectification, if you're using the Exceed Solve service, then actually you can give the individuals, the employees, the data subjects, uh, the responsibility for actually managing and maintaining their own personal data. And then that takes the onus of you as, uh, as an HR department for actually maintaining the data is actually up to date. You can pass that uh, responsibility over to your employees to make sure they manage, maintain their their information accurate and up to date, such as their contact details, next kin address details, and that will take a lot of workload off your shoulders. In terms of the right to erasure, uh, that is where you need to have the policies around uh, data retention. Um, how long going to hold that data for and at what point does it need to get erased and I know that certain organizations do have to hold that data for certain lengths of time and things to consider for example is that if you have got a, a complex disciplinary or complex grievance uh, that may for example include damages and claims and everything else you might have to hold that data legally for longer uh, than you may for other employees. So there's a, a piece to consider around that. In terms of the right to restrict processing, um, in the UK, certainly most um, organisations uh, would require all employees to have their data processed in a consistent way so they can manage their employees for HR and payroll related purposes. But I know that in certain organisations, uh, such as over in Germany or France, we have works councils, is the works councils may actually restrict some of the data processing um, and actually have to obtain the consent uh, from uh, the employees. So those are some of the things uh, to consider with them. I think those are the main ones that I wanted to bring out, uh, Darren. Do you have any questions uh, from, the, uh, uh, from the audience um, that you want to open up now? And uh, either you or myself can then go and, and, and answer those. Yep, absolutely. So just as uh, just as we start to enter into, uh, into into questions, um, um, please do a uh, quick reminder: it's not too late to ask uh, questions. So please type those in. Busy typing away. Um, so we just head to the question side um, very, very quickly. Quick um, shameless plug: if you need to have more information, then there's lots of different sources. Uh, I wrote the book, the Little Book of GDPR, which was a, a number one bestseller um, in the business law category on Amazon. Um, uh, and still um, it hasn't been out of the top 10 um, in that uh, category since I released it. So please do uh, feel free to go and um, look at that. Um, also, um, there's lots of podcasts and uh, blogs and videos 
um, available from the Fifth Step website. Um, please do visit, listen to those. They're all made uh, available free. And this webinar will actually be made available on those same channels as well. And uh, then we move on to um, contact details. So there's my contact details. Please do reach out. Um, follow, um, you know, follow us on uh, on Twitter and on LinkedIn, and do contact us if you've got any questions. And likewise, you perhaps already have uh, Chris's contact details, but there they are. And time has run out for you. If you've uh, asked uh, your questions, then let's uh, let's try and get the get those uh, answered. So, um, first one on the list here is um, from Lisa. Um, uh, does uh, GDPR stop companies from selling data to other companies for marketing purposes and cold calling? Um, yes, it does, Lisa, in as much as if that's not the purpose um, for which you agreed to the processing of that information, uh, the, the personal data cannot be used in that way. And as I um, said earlier on, you perhaps asked the question before I, I mentioned this, uh, direct marketing and marketing in general is the only business function that's actually mentioned directly in the GDPR. Okay, uh, next question here. Um, should we provide a privacy notice uh, with uh, contracts of employment? Um, yes, that's probably a good best best practice. Um, they should, your privacy notices definitely ought to be updated in and part of your um, part of your employee handbook and uh, other documentation, so they should be you know, very accessible to uh, to staff and data certain you know, the data subjects. Um, so as a best practice, you know that's not a bad one to include your privacy notice. And uh, Darren, I'd recommend I'd recommend a couple of areas where it'd be appropriate to do that. Firstly, uh, for recruitment and applicants, you need to decide how long you want to hold or is appropriate to hold applicant data. Um, the approach we're adopting with Nexseed is that we will hold applicant data for one year and after that point we will then erase the data. Uh, but if a candidate applies for another role in the meantime, then the clock will start ticking again from when they reapply for the next role. Uh, the other reason is, is that we don't believe that actually um, after a year uh, their CV really is, is accurate and up-to-date enough and we'd prefer much rather to have a fresh CV to start again. So that's our approach, but every organization and data can need to decide the, the appropriate duration for holding uh, that data. The second area is when people leave the organization, you should let people know how long you're going to retain uh, that data for. Uh, that's a decision you need to be take and you may need to get legal advice because as I mentioned earlier some organizations may need to hold data for longer. Uh, the principle that we're adopting with an exceed, I'm not saying it's the principle that everyone should adopt, the principle we're adopting is that uh, on the third anniversary of the tax year we'll erase the data and that is because HMRC related data, related data has to be held for at least three years so we will hold it for three years up until the next tax year. Good stuff, Chris. Thanks very much. We do actually have a best practice guide around um, HR and HR data retention. If um, if anyone's um, interested in receiving that, do please um, drop me a mail at um, info at fifthstep.com, and I'll be um, very um, you know, very happy to uh, to send that on to you. 
Okay, then next question. Um, how detailed does a privacy notice need to be? Do we need to list each piece of data and the basis for processing each one? Now, you don't need to go down to that, uh, that level, not, uh, not down to each individual piece of information. You need to be able to defend exactly why you're asking for all of the information if, um, if, if that uh, became a, a question, but you don't need to go down into that level of detail within the privacy notice. You should, however, within the privacy notice, be able to note that you are processing uh, personal information and um, sensitive personal information, if that's the case, uh, the reasons why, and uh, the, the retention policies, and who is going to be processing it, where it's going to be processed. So if you're having the data processed by third parties, you should be listing those, uh, those third parties, and also where it's going to be processed. So if it's being processed in... Um, you know, in another country or something like that, you need to um, list that. And you also need to list the contacts for your data protection officer. Now, if you don't have a data protection officer, uh, and most organizations um, on this call probably do, but if you don't have a data protection officer and, and um, um, but you think you might need one, then do speak to Fifth Step as we have a very uh, good way of providing those on a flexible and fractional basis, which makes it a very cost-effective way of doing so. Next question is, um, in regards to the retention of records, if you keep things for, say, six months and then you ask for a copy of the records held, um, what can you say? Um, would this be part of an induction notice as, um, uh, as a new employee or a lever process? So, yeah, I think Chris has probably covered um, and answered that question. Um, in uh, in his previous answer, um, but if um, if you do get a request and you've got the information for six months, the great news is that you've already told uh, the uh, data subject that you're going to retain their data for um, you know for at least six months, if that's the case, as part of the privacy notice. So if you've retained that information, then that's fantastic. Um, if they come to you within six months um, and they ask what information you've got. You let them know what information you've got. If they say, "I didn't realise you were going to keep it for six months," you direct them to their um, to your privacy policy uh, and uh, your privacy notice, and um, you're, you're you're all good. Okay. Uh, question here from Claire about recruitment. Um, if agencies are being utilised for this service, um, okay, will we still be required to? acknowledge the candidate's information with a process with a uh, with a processing acknowledgement offering the candidate the right uh, to withdraw content um no in that uh, specific instance you probably wouldn't um it may still be a, a, a best practice and you you know you're not uh, not necessarily um you're not necessarily um, stopped from doing that. It may still be a best practice, but your expectation there is that that information has been communicated um, via the um, yeah by, via the agent. So you should ensure that that information is presented in one form or another. But given that you're being provided the information by um, by in that instance a uh, you know a third party, um, they have to also make sure that that the the retention policies are communicated. So as a best practice, probably best to make sure, but you're not necessarily uh, forced to do it. That way would be my immediate um, um, recommendation. Da Darren, uh, okay. that's quite well, an interesting yeah. one. And uh, Darren? Yeah. Darren, just on using agencies, 
what you can do in terms of your consent from applicants. You can say that we're going to be using your data for recruitment purposes, uh, which may include passing your data, you know, to um, uh, agencies. Or actually, no, the other way around, if agencies are passing data to exceed, the agency would need to get their consent to pass your data on to their client. So they mean they, they may need to specify more details in their consent notice. Yeah, that's right. If they're relying on consent, that's definitely um, definitely the case. They will probably be relying on um, uh, on another basis for processing it. But if they're relying on consent, absolutely and ideally, they'd be uh, uh, presenting that information uh, back to you. Okay. Uh, next question: Is there any standard retention period for HR data and personal data? Um, no, there's not a standard. Um, as I mentioned earlier on, there is a best practice guide that um, Fifth Step and uh, Exceed put together. Um, last year, end of last year, wasn't it, Chris? We put that together. Um, so we've um, we've got that information. Um, as I said earlier on, more than happy to um, send that out and uh, you know, provide access to that. Just drop uh, an email through to info at fifthstep.com and we'll make sure that happens for you. And uh, the final question, unless anyone gets in uh, very quickly, um, will we be held to account if our recruitment agencies breach data um, uh, of our, our candidates uh, is it our responsibility to ensure our recruitment agencies are uh, compliant um, that's a really good question okay it very much depends on the relationship that you have and who is the data controller and who is the data processor it could well be that you are joint data processors okay because you've actually engaged them to conduct a um, a business process on your behalf, they've defined some of the information that they need and you've defined other information. So it could be a joint data controller, but either way, one of you is gonna be the data processor and one's gonna be the data controller. But if they are in, acting on your instruction, likelihood is you're the data controller, or at least partially so. And if they breach the their data, okay, then um, it's not gonna be, the consent model wouldn't have been uh, fulfilled. That's going to be a really tricky one. I don't think you're going to be accountable there because actually, if they breach the data, the can you won't have the necessarily have the full candidate information there, and the candidates are applying for a job with you, but they may be applying to a job with a number of other um, organisations as well. So I would say that in that scenario, that you wouldn't be held accountable, and actually be the recruiter who was accountable. If, however, uh, another third party um, were um, were to lose data, um, such as a payroll company. I've used that example a number of times. If they lose your data, um, uh, then you are both liable uh, and responsible under under GDPR. So you can both be fined and held responsible for that. Um, and the data controller is always responsible. Another reason why you need to ensure your vendor management system and processes are. Um, well maintained and in place. Well, I'd like to thank everyone today. Um, Chris, do you have any um, final closing thoughts? Yeah, thank you very much for that, uh, Darren. That's really kind of putting that in context. And uh, for our own uh, clients who are attending our, our user group session uh, next week, we'll go through this in more detail around how our product enables you to be compliant. And we'll have a follow-up webinar for those who cannot attend and those who are interested in seeing more detail. Um, with those details. So um, looking forward to everyone who wants to join that. And once again, uh, I'd like to say thank you very much to Darren for giving today's presentation and for his thought leadership and expertise around GDPR. So thanks very much, Darren.
You're very welcome, Chris and the audience. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking to you all again soon. Thanks very much. <laughs>